Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, from day one, we feel our way into and throughout the world by utilizing a complex array of sensory receptors that grow and evolve as we mature. We come to understand not just everything we encounter in our external lives, but also in our internal lives as well. Taste, smell, touch, sight. We are sentient beings. But what is sentience and when did it all arise in animals? Why are we sentient at all? Well, Nicholas Humphrey is Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the London School of Economics, and he has a book called Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. Uh, he joins us now. Welcome to the program, Nicholas. I think a really good starting point is to start uh, talking about um, Helen the Rhesus Monkey, because this is a really fascinating story. Yes, I mean, it was a very extraordinary experience for me. I was a PhD student in Cambridge, uh, age 18, 19, I think, and I had the opportunity to work with a monkey who had had the back of her brain damaged by a surgical operation. Um, it was part of an experiment to see what role that played in vision. Now, as people actually already knew, the effect appeared to be that, that she was completely blind. Um, and so she remained for about a year after the operation. But I took a chance to investigate a bit further. My supervisor was out of the country and um, I went and sat with his monkey, whom uh, had been as good as blind, apparently, and tried to do whatever I could to see if she really could see nothing, whether she wasn't sensitive to some aspect of her vision. Now, um, b before we go on, I mean, this uh, is a surgical removal of the primary visual cortex, the part of the brain that we associate with seeing. Um, and to remove that, you would expect uh, this monkey to be completely blind. That's right. Um, but as it happens, um, she has another part of her brain, which is actually the primitive visual system, which exists in lower animals like frogs and, and, and lizards, for example, which was also receiving visual information. Now, my question was, could she actually use that information coming to that part of her brain to see in a way which we weren't appreciating? So just again, we have two visual systems? I didn't realize that. Yes, we have two visual systems. One, an evolutionarily ancient one. It's the visual system of, of frogs and fishes and so on. And then... Um, Later on, with the advent of mammals and birds, a second visual system developed further up in the brain. In humans, it's called the visual cortex. Okay, so um, you wanted to see whether or not um, the, the monkey could still see using this sort of um, ancestral way of seeing the optic tetrum. What happened? That's, that's right. I, I can, must say I hardly expected it was going to work. But nonetheless, I thought, you know, uh, uh, I'll take a chance. And I, so I spent time with her, just treating her as if she could see. I interacted with her, played with her, tried to persuade her that she wasn't as blind as apparently she thought she was. I mean, this monkey was sitting around, staring blankly into the distance as if she had no idea that she could see. And within a day or so, I had her obviously using her eyes again. She would begin to, I, if I held a bit of apple up in front of her, she would look towards it. Um, and if I, if I waved my fingers, she would reach out to them and try and touch them. And literally within a week, I had persuaded this monkey who had been blind to all intents and purposes for at least a year, that, that she was actually able to use her eyes again. Um, it was quite a surprise when my super. I would imagine so. Yeah, well, it was a rather surprise to my my professor, who had basically staked his reputation on the fact that without a visual cortex, 
you, you can't see anything. Um, now, this monkey was clearly uh, flying in the face of that assumption. So uh, when he came back, eventually I got him to come and look at this new phenomenon, which which I, I warned of him of, of it. I sent a telegram saying, I've, I've, I've trained Helen to see. Um, he was a bit put out about that. Professors don't like to be put in their place by research students. But nonetheless, he, he agreed after a day or so to come and, uh, and, and check this out. And of course, he was completely persuaded. Within a month of that, we'd sent a paper to Nature, the, the science journal, saying a vision in a monkey without visual cortex. And as a result of that uh, paper and result of, the, of this discovery, um, I was given permission to go on working with this animal to see what else she might be able to develop, whether she could go beyond just looking at a moving object or reaching out to my fingers. And in fact, I worked with her for the next seven years. Um, I, she moved from Cambridge to Oxford with me then, and then from Oxford back to Cambridge. Uh, and within a few years, if you'd met this monkey, you'd have thought that she had completely normal vision. I would take her for walks out in the field in the village of Maddingley, where we had our, our laboratory. Um, she would run over to a tree and climb it. She would pick up things from the grass. She would, in an indoor arena, she could uh, run around avoiding obstacles. And uh, there were a lot of cockroaches around. I would give them to her for treats. She would quickly run after and catch cockroaches. This animal could see again. Mm. Um, but the question was, what was her vision really like? There were some funny things about it. She, she didn't seem to be at all convinced of her own ability to see. For example, if she was anxious or upset, um, then her ability to see apparently deserted her. She'd run around again as if she was completely blind. And I got the hunch that there was something important still missing, that vision didn't have the same meaning to her as it does to you and me. And so the question was, what is that about? Well, if you think about vision, um, when we use our eyes, we don't just get information about the environment through it, um, you know, cold information of a kind which a video camera could pick up or, or, or a machine could use in a robot. When we see, we have a conscious experience of what philosophers call the qualia of vision, the qualitative aspect of the feel of vision, just as we have the feel of sound and the feel, feel of taste or of pain. Um, now, those conscious experiences are not obviously required to perform the acts, acts which we, we use our sense organs for. If you, I mean, this monkey apparently could see perfectly well, even though my guess was that she wasn't actually experiencing it in the same way as we would. The important thing was, of course, we couldn't ask her. I had my own hunches about what was going on in her mind, but only when we looked at humans with similar damage to the visual cortex did we begin to move to the final amazing conclusion that, yes, a human with the damage to the visual cortex may be able to see and yet declare that they can't, that they're unconscious of vision. This is a, a condition called blind sight, which, as you say, as, as crazy as it sounds to me right now, has been sort of clinically recognized. How, how does that work and what does that have to do with the beginnings of consciousness? Well, how it works, of course, is what we're still not sure of. But almost certainly in humans, as with my monkey, we, the human patient is using the ancient visual system, which is still intact in the human brain, even after extensive damage, let's say, to the visual cortex. So it's not any other sense. It, it is still vision because the eyes are intact. It's still vision. Oh, yes. The, the... We checked out that they're not using echolocation or something like that. Right. Okay. 
though you might think they were using telepathy. I mean, it, it's, it's so surprising that actually uh, all people had all sorts of hunches about how this could be possible. But um, the, the take-home uh, message for me was that when we see, and presumably when a normal monkey sees, they are doing more than just taking in information. They are having a conscious experience which has a meaning to them, which goes far beyond actually just acquiring visual information. Uh, as philosophers now say, it's like something to be conscious. It's like something to feel pain or to taste taste sugar or to, or to see red light. And what it's like um, is what we now call phenomenal consciousness, phenomenal experience. And apparently uh, it's not absolutely necessary. You can get along quite well without it. So what's what's it about and why is it so important? Well, I, the, the, the question which comes back, this, this comes down to is actually the, the core issue of consciousness, which is that it has this qualitative, amazing, magical dimension to it, um, which we find so impressive. And of course, when we try to imagine or to work out scientifically how these experiences could be produced by a material brain, um, then we're scientifically baffled. We can explain how uh, a, a material object, a mechanism can take in visual information. We're not surprised that a video camera can do it or a robot can, can see using a robot brain. But there's no reason to think, of course, that the robot has these visual experiences of the kind we do. So um, why do we have them and how do we have them? So this led you uh, to uh, a place where you were wondering about the origins of sentience and uh, you seem to have um, I, I've sort of landed at a place that's quite surprising claiming that you feel that sentience may not have arrived until around 200 million years ago which would make it a very very recent evolutionary adaptation um, can you tell me why you, you think that's the case well yes I, I mean there's a general view that sentience feeling is very primitive. I mean, lots of people just take that for granted and that that it's more basic phenomenon than actually perception, taking in and integrating and making the most of visual information. The, the raw feeling comes first. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that actually to, to bring out this experience in ourselves is probably requiring a very sophisticated kind of representational uh, uh, act on, our, on behalf of our minds. We're seeing uh, what's going on in our eyes as, uh, as being about something which has a dimension which we have no, no way of beginning to understand in terms of physics. It, sensations have this otherworldly dimension to them. And... I, it, I thought from early on that this is probably a very sophisticated development. It's not primitive at all. Um, and that it probably didn't arise until animals, our ancestors, began to find a reason for it, a use, use for it, which a lower animal wouldn't have. A lower animal, let's say it's a frog or, or a, a lizard or a fish or an octopus, which does, doesn't have this phenomenal dimension to its experience, probably doesn't need it. And the reason I don't think it needs it is that it doesn't have a sense of self of the kind which we and our ancestors began to develop so many million years ago. And what phenomenal consciousness does is gives us an idea of ourselves and the kind of beings which we are, which lifts us into a completely different dimension. We don't think of ourselves as physical beings, as purely material beings. And we don't think of our friends and neighbors in that way either. And that's a crucial step 
in the development of human life. And I think it long preceded human life. I think it's part of the life of, of a dog or a or a, a parrot for that matter. They have the sense that they live in this world of sensations, phenomenal sensations, which define for them what they are, what it's like to be them. And because they experience themselves this way, they experience uh, their, their fellow beings this way. So when I see you, as I'm seeing you now uh, on this camera, so, uh, I, I, I look inside your head and I imagine a person who's thinking and talking and uh, experiencing the world in the way that I do. When we talk about, you and I talk about vision, we're talking about the redness of red and the brightness of, the, of gold and so on. When we talk about pain, we're talking about this pain equality, um, which you couldn't talk to a robot about because the robot wouldn't know what, what you were talking about. So um, you're talking about the hard problem of consciousness. And of course, it, it is hard because it's very difficult for us to imagine how it might have come about. Have you got any um, feelings as to how consciousness may have arisen in uh, in mammals and uh, in uh, in birds? It's, it's good you've raised this issue of the hard problem. I think that's been a disastrous uh, uh, new terminology. It was introduced by the philosopher David Chalmers uh, in a book about 20 years ago. And what he said is that the question of phenomenal consciousness, the quality of sensations, is something which we'll never understand at the level of physics. Therefore, it's not a problem of computing or whatever it may be. We can understand how the brain could compute information and come to conclusions pretty easily. What we can't understand is why it's like what it is to, to see red. Now, I think the consequence of defining this as a hard problem is everybody then got the message that actually the brain can't just be a mechanical device because how in that case uh, could it be generating experiences of this kind and that led people on to the wildest ideas about what the what they call the neural correlates of consciousness the idea came about that the brain actually has magical qualities of its own yeah um, that it's actually conscious in its own right that the material of the brain may be conscious this idea called panpsychism is now becoming extremely widely accepted the idea that consciousness is actually everywhere um and it's not and that it isn't a, uh, something produced by the mechanism of the brain it's present in uh, people ask questions now about whether the you know the sun is conscious or whether the teacup is conscious do they Oh, yes, I do. You go to the conference as I go to um, uh, the wildest speculation. Nicholas, how do we get from the, you know, the, the non-sentience of, as you say, lizards and frogs to conscious sentient beings if we only recognize the, me the mechanical um, and chemical nature of, of human brains? You know, in other words, we don't imbue some sort of magic into our brains. Well, what I've, I've tried to do, and I do it in my, my new book, is to go back in history and try and, try and reinvent consciousness. Um, starting very early on in evolution, I ask about how could it have got off the ground and have been elaborated uh, to, into the kind of marvelous experiences which we, we're so familiar with. Um, and so I take it step by step, and I argue that uh, we can see the beginnings of it in sensations which weren't didn't have this quality to them, um, but which then came to be represented as having a different kind of dimension. Just And I give an analogy to this. Look, you look at the pages of a book, uh, nothing magical about the text of Moby Dick, for example. Moby Dick doesn't contain, I mean, the, the text 
doesn't contain the whiteness of the whale or the or the anger of Captain Mohab, Captain Ahab, I should say. Um, it's that's not in the text of the of, of the book. That's the way which we represent the text. We read the text as having the qualities of that story. And what I think we do is we read something physical in our brain as having the qualities of, of, of this imaginary. Uh, we dream up consciousness based on what we interpret from the brain. So it's, it's an interpretation, it's a representation. And the brain itself doesn't have these qualities in itself, but we as interpreters of our brain activity can imagine and develop them. Hmm. Now, the question is to get from a frog to a human, it's quite a big leap. And I've developed some particular ideas about that, which are quite tentative, but they involve the idea of recurrent feedback loops and so on. I won't uh, try and explain that right, right now. But basically, I think that the brain generates some extraordinary internal kind of attractor states, looping uh, activity in the brain, which when we read it, we take as being uh, to be the, the experience which we, we all know. I have to say, um, we don't have time to go into it now, but if you are interested in, in, in consciousness, it is a very interesting theory and it's mapped out rather well in this really uh, fascinating book. It's called Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. Uh, really brilliant speaking with you, uh, Nicholas Humphreys from the London School of Economics. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.